1: I'm Rohini Kurup and this is an episode from the Lawfare Archive for September 6th, 2021. It's always a good time to think about feminism and national security, but especially so after a week where women's rights have been in the center of a national conversation after the Supreme Court rejected an effort to stop a restrictive abortion law in Texas from taking effect. For today's episode from the Archive, I chose a conversation between Benjamin Wittes and Danielle Citrin, taped during a NatSec Girl Squad conference about sexual privacy, technology, and the intersections of feminism and cybersecurity.
0: I'm in Wittis and this is the Lawfare Podcast. We are live for the second time at the National Security Girls Squad, the Natsat Girls Squad conference in Washington. It is... December 12th, 2019, and I am here with Danielle Citron, who has an enormous number of great distinctions, but since things are all about me, the first one of them is that she's the only person who's ever managed to get me to write a law review article. She is also, uh, more importantly, a professor of uh, law at Boston University, uh, one of the truly great deep thinkers on technology, sexual privacy, online content moderation, harassment, and the future ways that all these things are coming together in fashions that are quite ugly. And yes, As of the other day, she is a MacArthur grantee. Uh, the, The thing we are not allowed to call a MacArthur Genius Award, she's actually got one. So, Danielle. Welcome to Natsack Girl Squad, and welcome to the Lawfare Podcast.
2: It's, it's even more th- fun than I thought to see you say the intro than just only hearing it. I can't describe <laughs> that excitement, but it was really fun. Oh, it's know, wonderful to be here. <laughs> take, take, take,
0: it, it takes so little to please. Um, I want to start with how we met, because I think it actually brings together a the theme that we're here to talk about. Uh, I was thinking about the problem of remote attacks. And I was thinking, it started in the context of drone strikes, and I got interested in this question of uh, sexual extortion online, which uh, was this other area that I could identify where people were attacking each other uh, transcontinentally. And we'll talk about the substance of that issue a little bit later on. But one of the things that I noticed was that the entirety of the literature on remote, these remote attacks was taking place not in the cybersecurity context, or, or at least this type of remote attack, not in the context of the national security discussion, but in the context of feminist law professors uh, and and activists uh, writing about things like non-consensual pornography. And so... I ended up asking Danielle to review the the work that we had done at Brookings on this and that's kind of how we came together and I'm I, I guess I'm interested for your thoughts on we think of these Venn diagrams as very far apart the national security arena and the kind of sexual privacy online abuse arenas and then you think about what we're talking about on a day-to-day basis, and its relationship to things like Gamergate, its relationship to things uh, that you guys have been writing about for a long time. And so I am just interested in the highest level of altitude and your thoughts on what did the national security community miss that the feminist law community has been onto for the last, I don't know, 15 or 20 years or so
2: yep. so one will seem slightly critical, and the other I'm going to start with, um which is less critical of the national security field and just society writ large, which is women are kind of the canaries in the coal mine. When it comes to ways in which we can use or you know, newly developing digital technologies to torment, to deprive people of all their key life opportunities, the sort of first victims to this, you know, who perpetrators often will start experimenting with these tools is women and marginalized people. And especially women who are women of color, trans women, you know, if you're gay, you're going to face this sort of thing first. So when I first started working, this was about 12 or 13 years ago, on cyber mobs, and the targeting of individuals with privacy invasions, so nude photos without consent, rape and death threats, defamation, accusing someone of either being a prostitute or available for sex. You know, the the cyber mobs often would um, attack women and people from vulnerable communities. And what's interesting, so it's just Ben and I were just at a discussion about disinformation at, at, at Harvard Law School, and a, a friend of ours is, is one of the uh, policy make you know chief policy people for facebook on cybersecurity and he said facebook now calls cyber mobs are like cyber brigades And and Nathaniel was someone who was kind of with me in the trenches 12 years ago when I first started writing about cyber mobs. And he said, yeah, we have a name for it. It's still the same damn cyber mobs. So, you know, the way in which we're seeing network tools used to force people offline, to discredit them, to torment them, to invade their sexual privacy or privacy, generally speaking, to defame, often the first victims are the most vulnerable. And we use what's vulnerable about them, right? Their sexuality, their sexual identity in ways that are, of course, sexually demeaning and sexually threatening. And so, what, so this was my, that's my not judgmental story. What's slightly judgmental is, so why is it that the national security, until Ben started shaking it with Quintan Matt, right? And thinking about sextortion, you know, why is it that the national security community like, wasn't wise to all of this, and in a part, it's because of societal values, right, which trivialize gendered harms. We just don't take them seriously. And so now, and working with Facebook and Twitter for, I would say, about 10 years, you know, we've seen lots of progress in ways they think about these issues, and they're often sort of dubbed safety issues, right, when they're really kind of security for us all writ large, which, you know, in your work on sextortion was evidently clear, like a much broader lens. It wasn't just women and vulnerable people. It was all sorts of people, and we could use sextortion to steal national secrets. Like, there are ways in which these modes of attack, the early victims are the often the most vulnerable individuals who we don't often see and recognize the harm. And now, 12 years later, 13 years later, we're starting, I think, to see it for the fullness of the problem that it is.
0: All right, so there's a huge amount in there, and I want to kind of unpack a number of discrete different pieces of it. So I'm going I'm to throw this out as a provocation with limited idea of whether it's God's truth or total bullshit, but let's, let's see what we can do with it. What the Russians did to the DNC and to the Democratic campaign in 2016, is essentially exactly what you were writing about in in sexual privacy. Only not a state against a political party, but a bunch of misogynists against women. Yep. Right? It's exactly the same thing. It's dox It's, it's stealing material. It's doxing in the context of belittling uh, uh, comments in a fashion that makes it very difficult to be part of the public discussion. It's discrediting, discuss. right? right? So
2: so all of the vectors of attack are indeed the same, right? The, the stealing of emails to post them out online, to shame, embarrass, take them out of context, which is often the key, to be misleading often it's not that the personal information is so damning it's out of context it seems incredibly damning right and so it is was indeed the the the, the vectors that we saw 12 years ago or 15 years ago with cyber mobs on early bulletin boards are it's the same playbook it's now being used to, you know, to forward state agendas, right, and malicious state actors. And we we often don't think of them the same, but the tools in the toolbox of the abuse, of abusive behavior
0: is the same. And so I'm interested here in the critique of the national security community. Um, Should people have been looking at Gamergate and saying, gosh, If I were a foreign actor that wanted to wreak havoc on the U.S. political system, I would do this. I, this, you can, you know, this is happening somewhat organically, but we can engineer this. Should people have anticipated, um, based on what was happening in your world, what was going to happen in the broader political and national security world, or is this an example of that 's really easy to see in retrospect, but it's, it was actually required a certain innovation on the part of, uh, on the part of the russians, and there was there wasn 't a particular sign from the worlds in which you were operating that that was the direction it was going. It was just a problem that was affecting lots of women and, and, and you know, people in online spaces from from marginalized communities? So I think if we were
2: really paying attention, that the answer is we should have seen it coming, in part because the propaganda story is one of discrediting, marginalizing, um, you know, casting someone as the wrongdoer, right? I mean, we've seen this playbook. So in many respects, what Gamergate might, you know, the folks who went after Brianna Wu and Zoe Quinn and others who doxed them, so published their home addresses online and said that they deserved to die and to be right to be raped. Um, who posted discrediting things about them, su- suggesting they were prostitutes. You know, you name the lie, it's included. But it was off- often demeaning, and so threats, privacy invasions, the doxing, um, swatting. Sending people, you know, calling the police and sending them to their homes on the notion that there is sort of a live shooter inside, um, which is life-threatening. So in many respects, that is borrowing from the propaganda playbook that isn't new. That wasn't, you know, it is it was an, an effective tool for the Gamergate community. And now the folks, what's interesting is, you know, 2014, the summer of 2014, is when we saw the sort of fever pitch of Gamergate. But, of course, a lot of that started sort of long before with Anita Sarkeesian, who makes uh, videos about sexism in video games. Um, And, you know, when we started paying attention to Gamergate, surely, you know, everyone's taking notes on each other's effective campaigns of, you know, the effective ways in which we can silence people. Chase them up on and discredit them. So surely it's like a give and take. But I would think we we should have been paying attention in the national security space.
0: I want to come to sextortion, which is an area that seems to me both communities missed. Right. So I think that's an important part of the story too, Ben. That
2: that I too, you know what I'm saying? Like bringing the the fact that even folks working on cyber stalking
0: didn't notice sextortion. And and for reasons that I can explain, but I think that's really important. So so let's talk about that because I think this is one of those weird areas that that the security community missed for one set of reasons and the online abuse and safety and inclusion communities missed for a completely different set of reasons. So let's talk about... You know, how is it that a group of people that were concerned about cyber-stalking, who were concerned about uh, non-consensual pornography, uh, more colloquially called revenge porn, who were concerned about doxing and, and these kinds of uh, online abuse, missed an epidemic of sextortion, which... Uh, you know, you would think is sufficiently conceptually related that the same concerns that would lead you to be worried about one would lead you to worry about the other, and yet was really not part of the discussion in a serious way.
2: And part, some of that reason is for the sheer fact that sextortion thrives in secrecy, right? The whole idea of sextortion is that, you know, perpetrator says to victim— Give me more nude photos and perform a sex act on webcam. And if you tell anyone, I post this online. And how it thrives is in silence. Um, so what, why we were missing it, for the most part, this truly epidemic, it's amazing how many perpetrators would have hundreds of victims that you helped show in the, the, your two important reports on sextortion, was that people were being victimized. And they were listening to their perpetrators. And they weren't telling anyone. And law enforcement, in an effort to address some of these issues slowly, right? Slowly but surely, you documented some of these cases. But they really, like they stayed hidden in some sense because your victims wanted them hidden. It's a privacy violation to even talk about it, associating their names with it. Of course, victims weren't named. But So in some sense, it's not that, you know, so in my book, Hate Crimes in Cyberspace, I I interviewed victims of non-consensual intimate imagery Whose exes at first threatened that if they didn't allow the victims to to have these pictures taken of them or taken of themselves, that they would do X something abusive. But it wasn't necessarily that they would post nude photos. And so we did see some uses of of intimate imagery or the threat of it and its disclosure, predicated on threats. But it wasn't it wasn't clear that it was in itself part of the story of what I call invasions of sexual privacy. Yep for that reason cuz it was they were effective the perpetrators.
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's this weird area that merges this the areas that that you've written about with more conventional child exploitation and just kind of garden variety extortion, right? It's a, it's it's a it's a weird thing that way. There is also the sense in which uh, law enforcement did not miss it. I mean, this, we, we know about these, these matters because a bunch of people in law enforcement pursued a bunch of these cases and that's, but as a, the community that I think has a lot of responsibility for missing this is the cybersecurity community. And I want to talk about the vocabulary of this because it, it bothers me a lot. You know, cybersecurity is about protecting online the things that we value, right? So if if I compromise the a, a, a bank and take the things that it values, i.e. money or its records, we call that cybersecurity, right? And if I steal government secrets, we call that cybersecurity to the extent that I do it by any electronic means. But if I take what a 15-year-old boy or girl has of value, which is to say images of themselves. And uh, we don't call that cybersecurity. We call it online safety. We come up with some other name for it. We call it, you know, being safe online, right? Uh, We call it, you know, don't talk to strangers, right? We have these, uh, these kind of other vocabularies. And so my question is... Are we, in an unrealistic and distortive fashion, gendering cybersecurity in a fashion that is privileging the cybersecurity concerns of entities that are more rather than less powerful and, in this context anyway, more rather than less male?
2: So, yes, in calling, broadly speaking, Matters of national security that involve, you know, network tools. Well, calling it cyber security makes it calls it out as a societal harm. It's structural. And how we often trivialize harm is to individuate it, right? For for harassment, to call it just a one-off or it's online safety or abuse, is to miss the broader structural story that is actually happening. And that's why in my work I have for the, I've, I've called the problem of online abuse uh, one of the cyber civil rights, that it is fundamentally structural and it's interview, it, it's um, interfering with people's life opportunities. That is groups of vulnerable people. It is a societal problem, right? Much in the way that we once said of sexual harassment in the workplace, it's no big deal, just boys being boys, just get over it. It's an individual problem. You know, he's got a crush on you, calm yourself, which is often what people were told in the late 60s, early 70s. We, over time, began to see it as a real social problem, a problem for all of us, a problem for employers, employees, and and healthy and productive workplaces. And we've had to have, unfortunately, the same kinds of education of all each and every one of us to see online abuse not just as a one-off, not just a no big deal, boys will be boys, though law enforcement still says that to victims and it's frustrating, though at, Bar- at cyber civil rights, Mary Ann Franks and I are working on that. But nonetheless, that's the way to trivialize the problem is to individuate it and then so you can just then, you say it's no big thing. If we fail in this case, so the world won't fall. But the truth of the matter, if we understand it as structural, as fundamentally a cybersecurity problem, right, a problem for all of us as well as, I think, a civil rights problem, then we're gonna take it much more seriously. Then we're gonna appreciate the harm. And, and in a way, that's why, you know, having worked on non-consensual intimate imagery, uh, video voyeurism, sextortion, fake sex videos, I've argued that we should understand them all as invasions of sexual privacy. Because once you start to see the structural harm, then we're going to have society pay much more attention to it. Then it's much harder to walk away from, right? So, we're you know, working with lawmakers on non-consensual intimate imagery on, on Capitol Hill, you know, we, we've been working on a bill for the past three years, um, and we've got bipartisan support, but I think some of the problem is we've gotten people to pay attention to, to the issue, but we're not seeing it in the totality of its harm. And it is just one of of many invasions of sexual privacy that make it really difficult to live your best life, right, to get a job, keep a job, and so, you know, have relationships. And so I think that question is so important because it gets at your question, which gets at the structural social attitudes, that if we don't take it seriously, of course we're not going to address it.
0: So there's another prejudice in the cybersecurity community, which I think plays a role here, and I'm interested in your thoughts on it, which is, the cybersecurity community is really interested in hard technical security problems, and uh, sextortion is actually not a hard technical problem. It, there's, no, you know, there's no security, there's no vulnerability in these platforms that is giving rise to it. It's, it's, a, it's about the security of people rather than the security of internet-connected devices. And I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on whether this is a broader question than just this, but is the notion of cybersecurity too interested in the security of machines relative to the interests the security interests of actual people?
2: I think I couldn't agree more, heatedly so. It's absolutely much more than the sort of r- rule sort of code-like problems that we can fix. Human beings are the bug in the code. There's no question about it. And so as a privacy scholar, you know, data breaches, why do we have the Podesta hack? Why, because somebody was an idiot, right? Clicked on an email they shouldn't have clicked on. We are the weakest link, human beings. Whether it's for data breaches, malware, deep fakes. We are the bug in the code. And so, yes, I think we've got to pay much more attention to what we might call a sort of soft problems that are hard to get your arms around because it involves educating people. It involves law enforcement. It involves applying the law. It's not just technologists, right? Those are harder problems. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot
1: maybe your new best friend. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com.
2: Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
0: Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022 and they sent me their first privacy report i have since gotten eight others and it contains some shocking information they had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers that this had included 133 is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get twenty percent off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindelete.me.com/lawfare20 and use promo code Lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get twenty percent off is to go to joindelete.me.com/lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. All right, so let's talk as, so in the spirit of telling stories about Danielle along the way of this podcast. Uh, so one of the really fascinating things as you know, she came to work with more and more national security people was that the number of areas where your traditional concerns turned out to be the same as big national security questions uh, proliferated, right? And so the most extreme example of this is your and Bobby Chesney's work together on deepfakes. So uh, Bobby Chesney is a very traditional national security scholar. And if you had told me five years ago that the two of you would write an article together on a subject that was entirely organic to both of your core concerns, and it would seem completely natural, I would have had a very difficult time imagining what that subject could be. And yet... Yeah. here it is, like technology presented it. So uh, talk to us about deep fakes and with the following question in mind, are they a bigger concern for the individual woman or a bigger concern for the political system?
2: Okay, good. So I'm, I'm going I'm to answer that, I promise, but it's, it's always fun to shout your friends out when they do that to you. So lots of all all good things that in, in life so often lead to Ben. So Ben Ben is why, first of all, I'm so happy I got to be the one to finally convince him to write a Law Review article, which I have to say has been quite successful in convincing yeah, folks on know, the Hill. You win on this one. You know what I'm saying, right? I'm glad that we did that. We wrote about Section But I'm not 20. writing another one. Oh, well, don't say that never, right, audience? They may be able to convince you. You might consider writing just another one with me. But uh, I met Bobby Chesney through Ben. And yes, when um, Bobby is indeed a, a national s- security scholar in a way, I thought he wouldn't have said he would have written with a feminist privacy scholar <laughs> five years ago. Uh, but when the issue came up about deepfake sex videos that were appearing on Reddit, In April, I think it was 2017, Bobby and I both kind of wrote to each other and said, I think we figured out what we're going to write about together. Uh, Because by Bobby's lights, the problem was hey, how are we going to use this in ways that's going to cause mischief, either in diplomatic relations, military operations, privacy generally, which interested both of us. And for me, where we were seeing, and again, that story of the canary in the coal mine, where we were seeing it really just on the ground, and I'm gonna explain in a second where we're still seeing it, was the deep fake sex videos where you insert women's faces into porn and then turn them into, you know, they're they in pornography they never chose to be in. And
0: can I just, at the risk of interrupting, I just want to yeah. foot stomp the canary in the coal mine point here because this is yet another issue where if you want to understand things that national security people are going to be thinking about or need to be thinking about right now because of what's going to happen three, four, five years from now, look at what's happening in the porn industry right now. Absolutely. And I just, I think that point is deep and has, you know, cross-cutting importance in a lot of different areas, and I I don't want to tell you all, go spend more time with porn, but... Maybe go spend more time thinking about porn.
2: And and the cyber civil rights initiative and online abuse, right? Yeah, so, exactly. So what is, and I think what was interesting having worked with Ben and Quinta and Bobby before Bobby and I joined together to write a law review article and then a series of articles together, was that rather than wait five years to let it become a problem that we thought, yeah, this probably will be national security, we immediately both recognized that that's precisely what it was. It was a privacy National security, free speech democracy problem, and we were going to get at it right away. So in some sense, we didn't let it. The delay happened, that gap between sextortion, you know, the feminist legal scholars working on free speech and privacy, you know, we took us a while to even know if it was a problem and then to embrace it fully as a problem of invasions of sexual privacy, like Bobby and I didn't want to wait, right? We wanted to write a series of articles about why we should care whether you come at it from the national security perspective, privacy, free speech, or just frankly being a democratic citizen, you know, a citizen and allegedly a democracy uh, wants to keep it that way. We figured we had to to jump on it. And and what is clear, though, and in your, your initial question, Ben, was like, how do we know it's a gendered problem? So Deep Trace Labs out of, in the UK just came out with a study in September which showed that it found that there were 15,000 deepfake videos online, either identified as deepfakes or through scraping they could figure out it was a deepfake, that were 96% of those videos were deepfake sex videos, and 99% of those videos inserted women's faces into porn without their consent. So it is just a matter of empirical fact that it is a gender problem right now, and the concerns that Bobby and I wrote about include the deep fake release the night before an election that shows a major party candidate, let's say gravely ill, and then tips the election. Or the deep fake the night before the stock IPO that shows the CEO doing and saying something you should never, or she should have ever said, and therefore, you know, sort of tanks the IPO. Sort of decision choke points where we're gonna see implications for uh, our faith in the market, our faith in elections and democracy, um, you know, sort of the Nancy Pelosi cheap fake or shallow fake, you know, more often and at really, really important decisional points that I think we have gotten people people's attention. So in the summer, so in June, I testified before the House Intelligence Committee, uh, the Permanent Select uh, Committee, about deep fakes, and it was a, it was a hearing about national security, but I think we at least from my perspective, it was successful in getting them to see that it was indeed a gendered problem first um, and that to let them know that they should, just as we're saying now, Ben, we should be looking at spaces uh, of online abuse that target vulnerable people as a, as a nod to where national security problems are coming from next.
0: Basically, if it's happening to a 15-year-old girl in uh, high school now, it'll be happening to the country five years from now. Right. Yep. To Uh, devastating effect. Right. All right. So we've looked at an example, couple examples where the blinders are on in both communities or all communities and we're not drawing connections that we should be drawing. And here we have an example where the blinders are not on. People are you know, as this technology develops, talking about the relationships between, thanks to the two of you, talking about the relationships between the national security problem and the personal security, sexual privacy problem, that suggests to me, both in a positive-negative sense, that these communities actually have a very fruitful dialogue to have with one another and that there is... that. We think of them as the Venn diagrams are very separate circles, but in fact, there's a significant space of overlap that is really, really fruitful when you spend time in it. And so my question to you is, what are the barriers to that? You know, they're, they're very different communities. They don't, they don't live with one another. They don't talk to one another very much. And so I, I'm just interested in your thoughts. What would a, what would a dialogue in a, in a sustained, serious way between the sort of feminist privacy law types and national security concerns look like, and what, what are the big impediments to it? So it strikes me that this room
2: is precisely the answer to that question. Right? The NatSec girls community is, is precisely the community that's going to help bridge those conversations, that so often we don't see a problem is because we don't know who's suffering from it and it's not highlighted, it's not before our eyes. And so this community and, and and the work at Lawfare and some of the work that you know we'll do together is gonna be part of that and facilitating that conversation because I think there's no doubt in my mind that there have been some aha moments that no longer can we say they're separated, they're not disaggregated, they're part of the same story. So I actually think we're part of an early conversation that's gonna keep growing the more unfortunately we see some of these tactics that are used against more vulnerable people are gonna be used fruitfully by state actors. So I guess, what do they say we're ground zero in that important work of that conversation that I think will only build? And you're right, it is like, you know, um, I don't normally sit down with generals, (laughs) right, or or God bless love, Adam Schiff, but, um, right, or Devin Nunez, but you know, I found myself having conversations with them, right, at the committee hearing and then staffers. So hopefully we just all join that conversation and bring those stories Um, to folks either as policymakers, you know, in the the legislature, at the executive branch, you know, through litigation in the courts, we're going to have to bring them to the table.
0: Let's take some audience questions. Uh, Have at it, guys.
2: Uh, Good
1: afternoon. I think it's afternoon. Um, My question is actually about an intersection of this that I think we kind of brushed past a little bit, and it's the old notion of, like, the honeypot. Right? So as more women are entering the national security field, they are going to become vulnerable to opposing state actors, threatening and discrediting them. And back in the day, they used to do this by you know, tricking a CIA agent or whatever into a compromising situation with a person who was an agent posing as a sexy lady. But now you don't even have to be in the same room to take that picture because all you need to do is hack the cloud or you have to find their ex-boyfriend who hates their guts.
2: and Even just a photo and make a deep fake sex video. Yeah, or that, I mean, but the reality
1: is that the ability to take intimate images has become so much more easy, and as more young women are entering this workforce, that becomes a vulnerability for us. And I just went to a presentation on an SF-86, and I can't imagine having to go in to my employer and say, I have taken a nude photo of myself in the past and disclosed that as a vulnerability in the same way that once you may have been expected to disclose something else, like a financial vulnerability. Because that is a vulnerability for young women is this image of me is out there somewhere and maybe it's an ex-boyfriend or maybe it's a hacker
0: or maybe it's just the cloud. Uh, so, first of all, uh, you know, it is not just a vulnerability for young women, it's a vulnerability for young men as well, uh, and in fact, there is a uh, one of the weirder corners of the world of sextortion is a kind of industrial effort to sextort military Age uh, Men, and there has been actually had to be guidance on it from from some of the services because enough people were being caught up in these schemes and the scheme is pretty simple you a beautiful woman uh, friends you on Facebook and you get to chatting. Uh, And you're, you know, a 19 year old enlisted guy, right? And, uh, she sends you a nude picture and asks for one and you send her one. And then it turns out that the beautiful young woman is actually a call center in the Philippines that wants $10,000. And, you know, these are, this is a pretty standard scam now and it's catching a lot of people. So your, your point is exactly right, but it's, it's all, the, the issue is not just a, you know, a security clearance, you know, what could be stolen from you, it's also a real-time thing. Do do you have further thoughts on this, Danielle?
2: And I guess what I was thinking is that it's going to sort of force a conversation about kind of how we grapple with this, which on the one hand, I feel like it's just a conversation Ben and I have had offline about when you have the person that's being sextorted my view is a of course you never get in give in and that needing to teach us about invasions of sexual privacy and its sacredness and trusting each other and confidentiality versus that inclination i feel like we have this conversation whether you sort of pull the sting and put your own nude photo up to say you can't sextort me because i don't care I I don't want us to feel like people ever have to make, which is something we've talked about, to ever have to make that choice because fundamentally sexual privacy is about your autonomy and dignity. And it's your choice if you wanna share your nude photo. There's nothing wrong with that, right? But so long as whoever you share it with understands your expectations and respects and is discreet with those expectations, that it is, we have so much education to do about our norms and expectations and behaviors and attitudes and how we have to respect the boundaries that people draw around their intimate lives rather than saying, this is a way we can exploit you, and unless you exploit yourself, you can't deal with it.
3: Good afternoon. Uh, I agree completely that cybersecurity specifically is focused on protecting machines rather than people. But I think, and I'm not defending that position by any stretch. Uh, but I think we often define our problems by the solutions that we have, and so the folks in this field are trained on that sort of thing, penetration testing, everything else, and that's the solution. My imagination is limited to the tools I have to, to answer the problem. So I guess that's sort of a challenge, and a question is, what sort of solution areas should national security and cybersecurity people be looking to that they're not using right now? Do you want to take that? No, you start us off.
2: I saw your smiling and nodding of the head. No, I mean, I,
0: th- I think, I think the, the question reflects a very deep insight, which is that we tend to define problems included in, in terms of the tools that we have to address them. It's the, it's the old, if, if your only tool is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. And the problem with doing that in the cybersecurity arena is that the number of issues that uh, and vulnerabilities uh, that people have and things that they want to protect and vectors f- to attack them through uh, networked enabled means is much vaster than the set of problems that arise from the technical deficiencies of those machines. And you know, if you want to protect people from online abuse, there is a technical dimension to that, but the fundamental problem is not technical. The fundamental problem is, first of all, forensic. How do you find the people who are doing it? Secondly, it's the uh, unwillingness of people to report these incidents. It's very similar in that respect to Real-world kind of meat-space sexual assault, right? You have a you have a, a, a forensic question, a, a, a proof question, and you also have a shame and unwillingness to come forward question that are in fact partly driven by the problems that happen when you do. So it's a, these are not technical problems, and my point is only I don't think we should fail to think about it in cybersecurity terms because it is a proliferating set of problems that actually affect people's safety and experience using machines that are connected to one another merely because the solutions may not be engineering solutions.
3: Ooh, it's my turn, Phew. so I get to have the last question, and I have a few of them, and I and I will only pick one. Um, and certainly, to echo all of the points you all have made, I mean, we are already seeing the impacts of this, right? We Katie Hill just resigned uh, from being a member of Congress, and there are so many conversations to be had about the behavior of men. Um, in positions of power and they're staying power nonetheless. Um, and you're both certainly right. I mean, I adore both of you. You know that There's, this is a gendered problem. The way we talk about it is a gendered problem. And the fact that this is a personal responsibility thing blows my mind. I'm curious about what do we, how should our institutions respond to do the right thing, right? So uh, a couple of weeks ago, we saw the United States Marine Corps stand up and, shockingly, do the right thing thing. Um, An enlisted Marine, I believe she's a reservist, um, found herself in a position where some images she took consensually and shared consensually um, were shared without her consent. Um, Her name was shared in a way that she did not know would be, et cetera, et cetera. And the leadership of the Marine Corps stood up and said, we stand by our Marine. And they deserve many, many gold stars for that. What should we be doing when something like this happens? Because let's face it, it's 2019, and um, more people than not have either actual compromising photographs or the ability to have them made. So pretending they don't exist isn't going to work.
2: The notion that our employers stand behind us is a huge one. And the, what's so depressing uh, with Katie Hill is that you know it took months and months and months, of course, Al Franken resigned, but no question that if Katie Hill was you know, Ken Hill that, that we wouldn't have seen a resignation as quickly as we did. And there's no question in my mind either that some of that the sort of scurrilous attacks on her that she was sleeping with a current staffer were, frankly, it seemed to be completely untrue. And we just read her op-ed, sort of a searing op-ed about her thoughts of suicide that she thought her life was over that I want us, I mean, we are seeing, so it is really gratifying, of course, to hear about the, in the case of the Marines, you know, we had Marines United, that Facebook group where men were posting the nude photos of their colleagues, and we ignored it for a while, and it's true, folks got on top, you know, at some point, um, the institution got ahead of it and addressed the problem, but the more that we see people in power, and privilege standing up for individuals who are vulnerable, that's when we know we're in a much better place in terms of our social attitudes. Law can, you know, law is our teacher. It can provide some of those lessons, but so much of it is how we all behave and how we change our behavior so that when employers and folks in power start standing up for people who've been targeted and say, we're not gonna let this count against your job. We're not gonna not hire you because there's a nude photo in a Google search of your name. That's when we know we've sort of won.
0: We're gonna leave it there. Thank you all for joining us and please join me in thanking Danielle for joining us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. If you haven't yet done so, please take a second to share the Lawfare Podcast on social media, rate us wherever you found us. You can also now purchase Lawfare Swag at our online store, www.thelawfarestore.com. And you know you want to because our swag is kind of awesome. Our podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and our music is, as always, performed by the one, the only, the Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening.